If you have a copy of God's Word, let's turn to the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, looking at verses 53 to 72. Uh, and while you're turning there, let me just say it is a joy to be with you. I, my name is Nate Aiken. I work with a, a, a ministry called the Pillar Network. We do church planting and church revitalization. Um, and your church is considering engaging with our network. And so it's a joy to be here with you. I know some of your pastors, so I don't know if y'all have gotten a chance to really get to know Pastor Moises and then his family and wife, Betsy, and the kids. They were uh, members of my church where I was a pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina. So love them. Also know Pastor Blair. Met him years ago when he was at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, and just I've gotten to know Jared over about the last year and a half. And, uh, and my wife and I spent some time yesterday uh, with Jared and Jordan watching uh, college football. It's, it's always a good day when the University of Florida loses, and so that was good, and uh, I was happy, and uh, so just really enjoy getting to know your pastors and just the, the, the pleasure of being able to be here on Mission Sunday and also in the middle of your Who's Your One campaign, and that's why I chose Mark 14, 53 through 72 as we consider these themes, the Who's Your One and the, the missions theme, and there's, there's a saying that I think is uh, particularly appropriate as we consider those, as we consider both evangelism, missions, and other things. And, and that saying goes like this, we commend what we cherish. Or you might say it like this, we talk about the things we love. Now, our culture tends to diminish the word love. Uh, we say things like, I love tacos. Um, and I certainly have strong affection for tacos. Uh, I love good coffee. I love the beach. I love the cowboys. I love Krispy Kreme donuts when the hot light is on. Um, had a pastor that used to, a friend, a pastor that, that was in his church years ago who used to warn uh, single girls in the congregation who were dating guys of guys saying to them, I love you. He said he might just love you like he loves a donut. And, and his hot light might be on. Um, but it's true. I'll let you guys settle down from that for a second. It's certainly true that we talk about what we love. My my parents, I have three brothers, and my parents have 13 grandchildren. If they were here, they would want to show you a picture of their grandchildren. I actually think we do have a picture. My wife and I got married just a little over a year ago, and that's my 13 nieces and nephews. Uh, my parents cannot wait for Kelsey and I to add to the number, and so there's a lot of pressure on us right now. But we talk about the things we love. I mean, we can't even help but talk about TV shows. And we talk about them all the time. I still talk about The Office. I quote The Office. And that show's been off for years. Which begs the question this morning, if we talk about what we love, do we talk about Jesus? And I think there are really two questions that should confront us this morning if we do not talk about Jesus. The first one would be this. Do we really love him? Or are we paying lip service to the fact that we love him? And the second question would be this. If we indeed do love him, what is keeping us from commending Christ? What is keeping us from talking about him? And I think one of the answers is certainly fear. Fear of being seen as weird, fear, fear of being rejected, fear of possibly even being ridiculed or attacked. Certainly a factor for keeping us from talking to our one, who's your one, from talking to our one about Christ is at times fear. Now, the text in front of us this morning is a weighty text, uh, but it's a text that I love um, as somebody who has been uh, clearly a sinner and a failure at times. Because what I love about this text is that Jesus in his love, Jesus in his amazing grace to repentant sinners will not let us be defined by our past, even by our failures. It's a magnificent truth that we have in the gospel, right? Paul writes about this in the New Testament that, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. 
Therefore, if Christ, because of his work, because our trespasses are not counted against us because of his work for us, shouldn't we treasure Jesus? And if we treasure him, shouldn't we talk about him? Shouldn't we commend him? Shouldn't that change everything about who we are if we are Jesus's people? And so my prayer this morning, we'll read the text, a little bit of it, and set it up. But my prayer for you this morning is that this text will make us love Jesus all the more, and it will make us faithful witnesses to tell the world about him. I'm part of a network that does church planting. We're on international, we're on missions Sunday. And the truth is, church planting and international missions starts with evangelism. It starts with all of us being responsible with the gospel to tell others about him. That is how we do church planting. That is how we do international missions. And so I want to, to talk about that topic this morning. We'll talk more tonight about church planting and missions, but it all starts with us being responsible for the gospel one person at a time. And so let me read the text and then we will jump in. I'm actually going to start in verse 32 of chapter 14 as we consider the context. And then I'll read a few of the verses we're going to look at this morning and then ask for God's help. And our brother Mark, he writes this as he's carried along by the Spirit. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to them a third time and said to them, he said, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, verse, 40, uh, verse 53 says this, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And while he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Let's pray. Our Father, now as we give our attention to the book, uh, my prayer is simple. Would you help me? Father, at no other time than when I am opening your word to address your people, am I completely aware of my inadequate, my inadequacy to faithfully teach your word. And so, Father, I need your help. Father, would I preach with confidence in your word for the good of your people? Father, would I preach with confidence in your word for the sake of the lost? But Father, ultimately, would I preach with confidence in your word for your glory? So Father, now in the text, would you show us yourself? Father, then would you show us our sin in order that you might show us our Savior? Father, now would you sanctify us in the truth? Father, we know that your word is truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I think an appropriate question this morning as we look into these verses is, what do you fear or what are you scared of? Spiders, 
I remember the comedian uh, Jerry Seinfeld years, years ago talking about how the, the number one fear of Americans is public speaking and the number two fear is death. And so he jokes, you would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, which is interesting. What do you fear? I, I fear lakes. You know, there's, there's snakes in there and Chevy trucks and things like that. But the truth is, fear is a part of everyday life. Back when I was in middle school and high school, most of you probably won't remember these, but some might. When I was in middle school and high school, there was this line of t-shirts. They were called No Fear t-shirts. And so somewhere on the t-shirt, there would be the words No Fear and then some kind of, of pithy slogan. We actually have pictures of those this morning as well. I'm sorry, these, these were uh, t-shirts in the 90s, so the, the resolution's not all that great. But they would have slogans like this, right? Second place is the first loser, No Fear. Or I like this one, does not play well with others. It seems others have a problem with losing, no fear. And then my favorite now is the older I get, the better I was, no fear. I actually, I played uh, basketball in college at a school called Murray State, played in an NCAA tournament game. And my only stat I recorded in the NCAA tournament game was a foul. <laughs> but I'll tell you this, that foul gets better and better every year when I tell that story. No, the fact that there are a line of t-shirts called no fear is simply a reminder that fear is a part of everyday life. And I'm afraid, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think fear is a major reason we fail to be faithful witnesses. We fail to commend Jesus to people around us. And in front of us this morning is a text that does revolve around fear and the, the lack of fear. And this swirls around the topic of being a faithful witness to the truth as seven times in nine verses, Mark will draw our attention to the theme of being a witness. Now, here's the context in Mark's gospel. We, we read a little bit of the context. Here's the context. Jesus' hour has come. Jesus has been betrayed. Jesus has been arrested. Jesus, as it says, has been handed over to sinners. He's been handed over to the Sanhedrin. And what we'll get to see this morning as we behold this text is that Jesus suffers not just at the hands of his enemies. Jesus suffers at the hands of his friend. Again, demonstrates to us so often when we think about the cross and what leads up to it, we want to think about the physical pain that Jesus experienced. But, but what's going on with Jesus is more than just physical pain. And we'll see that this morning. There's relational pain as he is betrayed by friends. And there certainly is spiritual pain as we see even in what he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the fact that he will be, he will be temporarily forsaken by his father. Now Mark's going to draw our attention to two very different trials. One you would call the most unjust trial the world has ever seen as Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. Growing up, uh, we used to say to our dad when we get upset all the time, Dad, that's not fair. And my dad would always respond, well, son, life's not fair. He had a very encouraging spirit about him. <laughs> There's hardly a better illustration of that truth, though, that life is not fair than the trial we're going to see with Jesus. The second trial, it's a more informal trial, will be the trial of Peter below in the courtyard. And what we're going to see is that both trials have witnesses, both trials have confessions, but they could not be more different. And as we work our way through it, we will see in these verses... On the one hand, there will be some things in these verses that are horrific, and they are in many ways gut-wrenching, and yet we're going to also see some things in this text that are beautiful. As one preacher puts it, talking about these verses, he said, here's where we begin to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, he says, become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of this as we step one step closer to Golgotha. 
Now, there's two sections in the text, basically this, Jesus' trial and then Peter's denial. And I'm just going to break down the text in two parts. We're going to see the faithful witness in the first few verses, and then we will see the unfaithful witness in the following one. So first, the faithful witness. Here's what Mark writes in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Shortly before daybreak on Good Friday, this mob that has been led by Judas takes Jesus before the Sanhedrin to be tried. Now, the Sanhedrin was a group of 71 men, including the high priest. Matthew actually identifies him for us. It was the high priest Caiaphas, and it's a group that is consisting of three different smaller groups. The first group being the chief priest. That's the Sadducees. The second group being the elders. That's the Pharisees. And the third group being the scribes or the, the teachers of the law. And Mark tells us that Peter here follows at a distance. Matthew actually records for us that Peter follows Jesus to see what he thinks is the end as he stays below in the courtyard of the high priest's home. So he's down in a courtyard. He's looking up into an upper room where he can see what is taking place with Jesus. Now, if you know your Bible, it should be alarming to you where Peter's at right now. Merely hours before this, Peter has told Jesus, even if I have to die, I'm willing to follow you. And yet now it tells us very clearly he sits at a safe distance to observe the trial of the man he loves. Merely hours before, he makes a promise, and he is already beginning to break that promise. Now let's look at the trial. Verse 55 says this, The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. This is a farce trial, and we know it's a farce because the words tell us right from the beginning. They are seeking testimony against him to put him to death. They already have a verdict in search of some evidence. And Mark, from the outset, wants to let the readers know this is a kangaroo court because they cannot find testimony against him. And it's very ironic what's taking place. People come forward and actually break the Ten Commandments. They bear false witness against Jesus, and even though they're lying, their testimony will not agree. It's a shameful scene. These are the leaders of Israel. The, the, the Sanhedrin are the leaders of Israel, those who are to love and adore and uphold the law, and yet they do not care that the Ten Commandments are being broken. And that's because they will let nothing get in their way of their pound of flesh when it comes to Jesus. Now we see specifically, you see in verse 57 into verse 58, one of the specific charges against Jesus, he said he would destroy the temple. And this certainly would have been a serious charge. The temple was the center, not just of religious life, the temple was the center of life. It's hard for me to find an illustration that comes even close to what is being said here. The closest I can come in American culture would simply be this. It would be like a terrorist saying, I'm going to destroy the White House while burning all the, all the Bibles in the United States. It would have been serious. It would have demanded a capital punishment. It would have demanded execution according to Jewish law. The problem is Jesus never said he was going to destroy the temple. He did say that both his body, which was likened to the temple, would be destroyed and raised up in three days. And he did predict in Mark chapter 13 that the temple itself would be destroyed, but not by him. 
And yet it's interesting in the text, you see it there. Even on this, their testimony did not agree. But that's because Jesus in their eyes is guilty until proven innocent. Interestingly, in verse 60, now the high priest, the, the top judge, actually is irritated, nothing sticking to Jesus. And so he takes matters into his own hand and begins to question Jesus directly. And yet, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, Jesus remains silent. A prophecy made 700 years before, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. The whole thing is a farce. The whole thing is unfair. unfair. Nearly every detail that we read in the text violates Jewish law. And I'll only mention three quickly, just for time's sake. The first one is this. Jesus is never given a defense attorney, which would have been demanded in a trial that was considering execution. For those of us that know the rest of the story, it's interesting to me that our great mediator would not be given a mediator. Secondly, the capital trials or ones involving execution were supposed to take place over two days so that judges would have a night to sleep on their decision so that they would not wrongly execute somebody. And yet this trial will take only a matter of hours. The law also demanded that in a capital case, there had to be at least two witnesses that agreed so they would not wrongly execute someone. So the fact that there is contradicting testimony should have had this already thrown out. But they so badly want him dead, they short-circuit their process at every term because they want to expedite the execution of Jesus. And I think we have to ask the question, why? Why do they so badly want this man's blood? Well, it's true. He does threaten their authority. He does threaten their status. He threatens their position in society. If what he says is true, if what he claims is true, it will shake up their world. He is a radical threat to their way of life and to their authority. But what's, what's sad here in the text is they miss that Jesus has come for their good. Jesus has come to give man even better forgiveness, even greater forgiveness than the sacrificial system can give. And certainly Jesus has come to give man greater access to God than the temple could even provide. What's sad in this text, what the tragedy is of this text, they miss what kind of Messiah he is and they miss what kind of Messiah they need. And I think the question for us this morning is do we? It's interesting, they want a Messiah who's going to give them earthly victories. They want a Messiah who's going to give them temporary, physical victories. Not one who's going to give them eternal and spiritual ones. I remember years ago hearing a pastor speaking to a group of college students talking about this, this kind of trade-off that we sometimes make in American Christianity where we, we kind of talk about the gospel, sometimes in ways that are prosperity gospel, which are outright heretical, but in other ways where we basically say, come to Jesus and you'll have your best life now. He, said, he says in the sermon, of course you're going to want a Jesus who'll give you a car. Of course you're going to want a Jesus who'll give you a fine marriage. I'll take your Jesus if the payoff is right. No, the truth is, brothers and sisters, there, is, there are temporal Things that come along with understanding the gospel, with aligning our lives with the word of God. But the biggest thing that comes along with being in Christ is our eternal destiny is set. Our biggest problems are solved. And those biggest problems are spiritual, not physical. Now the text continues. The high priest takes on the role of prosecutor. Verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Matthew tells us that he asked Jesus this question under oath. And he says this, it's the, the question he asks him is the question that the whole book of Mark is about. It's what, what the book of Mark has been building to. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? That was simply a way for him to refer to God without using God's name, without saying the name Yahweh. And now in the text, 
Gloriously, Jesus remains silent no longer as the faithful witness speaks. And I want us to feel the force and the weight of his answer this morning. And here's what it says. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus here clearly connects himself as the the son of God. He connects himself to Yahweh who showed up in the burning bush to Moses. He connects himself to the son of man from Daniel 7 who is to have all power and dominion and authority. And he connects himself to the messianic king of Psalm 110. Here's what's taking place in this answer. Here's what is taking place by him quoting these texts. He is saying, yes, right now you sit in judgment over me, but there's a day coming when I will sit in judgment over you. Have you ever thought about what it's going to be like in judgment when Caiaphas comes face to face with Jesus again? Up until this moment in the book of Mark, Jesus has for the most part veiled his identity. In fact, when people make confessions about him being the Christ, him being the Messiah, he tells them, don't tell anybody. And that's because he knew that they were anticipating a wrong kind of Messiah. They were, again, anticipating one who would take care of their earthly problems, one who would overthrow Rome, not who, one who would come to suffer. The mystery throughout the book of Mark is this question. Who is this man that even the winds and waves obey him? Who is this man that teaches with this kind of authority? And now the veil is lifted. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one who has come. And why, the question has to be, why does Jesus now, why does he choose this moment as the moment by which he lifts the veil for everybody to see? And it's simple. It's what we read at the very beginning. It's because the hour has come for him to drink the cup of God's wrath against sinners. The hour has come for him to set his face like flint toward the cross. Jesus now fully reveals his identity because he has not come to overthrow Rome. He has come to offer his life as a ransom for many. He has come to solve man and woman's greatest problem. He has come to solve our sin problem. Now, see the reaction of the high priest. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. The high priest sees this as blasphemous. He sees this as a sure guilty verdict and in an act of, that symbolizes his, his horror and his shock and his outrage. He, he tears his clothes. I don't know if you remember a couple years ago. I can't remember if it was the past Summer Olympics or two ago, but there was these Mongolian wrestling coaches who were so mad they thought their wrestler had gotten cheated, and they went in front of the judges and they stripped down in front of the judges. And don't worry, I don't have pictures of that to show you. I mean, it's a weird way to to be mad at judges. I mean, in America, when we're mad at judges or referees, we just like insult them and threaten their family, you know? I'm not condoning that, Um, but at least we don't strip, you know? No, they're so horrified by what Jesus has said that in this act to symbolize their outrage, he tears his clothes. The rest of the Sanhedrin follows his lead. They condemn Jesus as worthy of death. Sadly, the text tells, is showing us they give no attention to whether what he's saying is true. And now in the text, things from, move from not just being shameful, not being, I'm sorry, not just being unjust, but being, to being quite shameful. 
as their anger towards Jesus is no longer restrained. In verse 65, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Just imagine the scene if you can. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You can imagine what it is that Jesus has endured for sinners. What it is that Jesus has endured for us. They spit on him. You know, when I was a child, I used to think this was the guards doing this. But this is not the guards. This is the leaders of Israel. This is the shepherds of Israel who are doing something that was just as disgusting and reviling then as it would be now. I mean, when I was growing up, I got spit on one time. As when I was a 13-year-old, I remember I got spit on one time, and I immediately punched the kid in the face. And I'm just saying, when I, when I read texts like this, I'm just reminded that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. They blindfold him, they punch him, they mock him, they humiliate him. Who punched you in the face? It's shocking behavior of the religious leaders of Israel. And then the guards do follow in the footsteps of their leaders. They begin to abuse this man. They receive him with their fists. I mean, what a miscarriage of justice. And if you know the story, it's only getting started. I think these texts, you can read on into 15 and, and so on. You read what's going on here from Gethsemane on. You see the ugliness of sin. But that's part of the glory and the beauty of the gospel. We see the ugliness of sin in order to see his love for sinners. We must be reminded that the cross and all that leads up to it, the humiliation we're seeing here, takes place for our forgiveness and for our redemption. And in the face of it all, Jesus never wavers. No, in the face of it all, he remains faithful to the truth. No wonder our brother John in the book of Revelation would call Jesus the faithful witness. Now, secondly, and this will be much quicker, the unfaithful witness. Verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. We turn to a different sort of trial taking place below as Peter goes, undergoes the examination of a servant girl. You know, sometimes in our day we say things like this, you know, say this to a friend, I'd take a bullet for you. I read a card the other day that went like this, I'd take a bullet for you. I mean, not in the head, but like in the arm or the leg or something. We say things like, I've got your back. And just a few hours before this, Peter has pledged this sort of love and devotion to Jesus, to his friend. And then along comes a servant girl to put that to the test. Now, again, we don't need to read these texts as just casual observers. We need to try to put ourselves in the story. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. The man you left everything to follow is above you being humiliated. He's doing all of this for you. And there's a chance for you now to be a faithful friend, for you to be a faithful witness. But as we see in the text, Peter does not have Jesus' back. And seemingly fearful for his life, he denies knowing him. In fact, he not only denies knowing him, he distances himself physically from Jesus. He moves towards the, towards the gate. The text continues, And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. 
but again, he denied it. She's persistent. She directs others to look at Peter as well now. The, the verb, uh, the tense of the Greek here indicates that his, his denials are intensifying. And that leads us to the third and final one. And again in verse 70. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Finally, several begin to chime in. They notice his accent, it tells us, and that he must be a Jesus follower. And I'm afraid if you're familiar with what's going on in the text, you can miss the, the gravity of what is happening in his third denial. He so wants to break from Jesus that not only does he deny him, he begins to swear and curse. In fact, he uses the Greek word anathematize. He is literally saying, if I know this man, God strike me down. This is tough to look at. The man you've left everything to follow is at this moment being spit on and you won't even acknowledge him to. If you don't notice it in the text, he doesn't even mention Jesus' name. Sadly, what Judas did for profit, Peter did for free. How much has changed for Peter in a short few hours to go from I will die with you if necessary to not even being willing to mention Jesus by name? which I think is a warning to us, raises some questions I think we need to grapple with this morning. Have we ever made promises to God that go out the window because we are fearful? And the second question would be this, is it fear? Fear of being seen as weird, fear of being ridiculed, fear of being even mocked, fear of maybe even physical danger. Is it fear that often keeps us from commending Jesus to a lost and dying world? He's immediately confronted with his betrayal as the rooster crows a second time. He's drawn back to that moment when Jesus had predicted it all. In fact, Luke records for us in his gospel that in this moment, him and Jesus make eye contact. And he collapses to the ground and begins to weep. Have you ever had a moment when you were so overwhelmed by your sin that you collapsed to the ground weeping? You know, in many ways, the scene below is more gut-wrenching to me than what's taking place above. Because as Jesus is being humiliated, his friend is ashamed of him. And I think this morning, we must not think that we are above this. There are many differences between these two trials, many differences between these two witnesses. For time's sake, I'll mention just three quickly. Jesus declares the truth despite the consequences. Peter lies in order to avoid the consequences. Jesus is attacked by false witnesses, ironically, and yet he remains true. Peter is attacked by truthful witnesses, and yet he bears false witness. He tells a lie. And most importantly, Jesus is questioned by the most powerful men in Israel, and he's faithful. And Peter is questioned by a servant girl, and he is unfaithful. And so in conclusion, I want to just give two applications. I want to think about the question, what kind of witness will we be? And I want to give us two applications that I hope will strengthen us for the task that we have been given. And the first one is this, there is forgiveness at the cross. The cross silences our failures and our rightful condemnation for our sin, even for our unfaithfulness. This passage has everything to do with Christ's substitutionary work on behalf of sinners. In the text, what's going on here in this moment, Jesus, though without sin, experiences human injustice in order to satisfy divine justice, do sin. 
to solve that for Peter, to solve that for us, so that ultimately our trespasses will not be counted against us. This is the grace of the gospel. In this scene, God himself stands in the dock to take the punishment that man alone deserves for their rebellion and sin. This is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. God himself would take our place. It's what the theologians call the great exchange. At the cross, Jesus takes what we deserve. He takes punishment upon himself. He takes judgment upon himself. He takes death upon himself. And then in his grace, he gives us what we do not deserve. He gives us righteousness, eternal life, no judgment. That's why a pastor, a Baptist pastor of years gone by named R.G. Lee said this, and I love this quote. At the cross, Jesus became for sinners all that God must judge so that we by faith in him might become all that God cannot. And that means that at the cross, even our failures in evangelism are forgiven. Oh, the truths of that should make us treasure Jesus. It should compel us to tell our friends and our families and our neighbors and our classmates and our coworkers and the world about him. I mean, if someone awesome does something for you, you tell people about it, right? I mean, my middle brother got a picture taken with Michael Jordan. I tell people about it and I wasn't even there. And he's better than LeBron, by the way. Oh, brothers and sisters, how much more should we talk about the fact that the creator God had such affection for us that he would take what we deserve and give us what we do not? Because the truth is we do talk about what we love. Which begs the question, will our words and will our lives show the world that we treasure Jesus or that we treasure so many other things? If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, and I don't want to assume everybody in here is. I want to commend Jesus to you this morning. Oh, I've been preaching about the one that I love. Who has made a way for somebody who is a failure like me. To be forgiven. Y'all don't know me. But there's been great sin in my past. And the Lord Jesus has forgiven me all the same. If you're in this room, you might think, I'm so bad. There's no way the Lord would forgive you. I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. That Jesus loves you. He knew in advance the very sins you would commit, and he died for you anyway. And the way you take hold of what Christ has done for sinners is you repent of your sin. You admit, I am a sinner. Cry out for mercy like that tax collector. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Turn away from your sin. Put your hope, put your trust, put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone for your future. And if you will do that with authenticity, if you'll do that with faith, Jesus will receive you. There will be pastors here at the end who would love to talk with you about what it looks like to respond to him in repentance and faith. And then final application, let the resurrection make you a fearless witness. Let the resurrection make you a fearless witness. This is not the end of the story for Peter, because the truth is Peter would eventually become a bold and faithful witness. Everything turns around for Peter after this. Things so radically changed that about 50 days from this day, Peter would once again have his life threatened. He would be not this time though in front of a servant girl. This time he would actually be in front of the very Sanhedrin who were trying Jesus threatened with his life. And it's very interesting. This time he is threatened with stop talking about Jesus. Stop saying his name. And he will not do it. I cannot help but talk about the things that I have seen and I have heard. So the question is what changed for Peter? And it's very simple brothers and sisters. What changed for Peter is that Jesus is not dead anymore. No, he's the ascended Lord seated at the right hand of the Father, which means if you're on Jesus' side, you're okay. 
The end of Peter's story, thankfully, is not his collapse at the rooster crowing. Jesus would meet him in Galilee after the resurrection. Jesus would embrace him. Jesus would forgive him. And in Jesus' grace, he would not let Peter be defined by his past. Everything changed for Peter after after the resurrection. And ironically, the very things he fears in this text, mocking, beatings, arrest, and even crucifixion, he would willingly face later on. In fact, the church fathers tell us that he would suffer a passion like our Lord, that he would be bound to a cross. Tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down because he was not willing to be uh, uh, crucified like his Lord. What changed for Peter? Let me ask it like this this morning. Think about somebody you love. What if somebody you love and somebody you left everything to follow, what if he was humiliated, beaten, crucified, and what if he died? And what if because of that your world came crashing down? And then what if three days later you ate fish with him? Would that change your view of death? Would it give you a new outlook on life? The New Testament is very clear that Jesus has conquered death and the grave. And the promise he makes to his people is that if we are in Christ Jesus, ultimately the grave will not touch us as well. For those of us in Christ, our resurrection may not be three days later. Our resurrection may be three billion days later, but our resurrection is on its way. So let the truth of the resurrection make you fearless because you know for you, death is not the end. Death is merely the beginning of a life that you cannot even imagine how wonderful it's going to be. I mean, some of you in this room need to consider if you wouldn't give your life in order to go tough places where Jesus is not named in hopes of the reward that you will receive on that day when you see him. I can promise you something now. There's a lot of you that are young in this room. If you take Jesus seriously now, and if you give your life to Jesus, you will not regret it when you see him face to face. There's a long line of saints who have stared death down with the resolve to be faithful to the gospel despite persecution, despite death, because of their hope in the resurrection. It's recorded for us in the reign of Queen Mary, Bloody Mary as she's called, that some 288 English Protestants were killed for their faith. Famously in those days, a man named Hugh Latimer, as he was being burned at the stake, turned to his friend Ridley, and he simply said this as he's burning, be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. And only days later, John Bradford, as he was being burned at the stake, turned to his friend John Leaf and said this, listen to this, be of good comfort, my brother, for we will have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. And both are said to have lifted up their hands and prayed as they were burning. So the question is this morning, what kind of witness will we be? The good news for the believer is there is forgiveness available for our failures, even if we have a Peter-type collapse. Oh, what must Peter have been feeling those days after the resurrection when he saw Jesus again in Galilee and Jesus embraced him? And the truth is he will embrace us if we will call out to him for mercy. And brothers and sisters, there is power in the resurrection of Christ to make us faithful witnesses even in the face of fearful things. Be of good cheer, brothers and sisters, because soon we will have a merry supper with the Lord. No fear. Let's pray.